Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be back with you today after returning from vacation the last couple of weeks. Uh, our entire family was able to go this year, plus some other special friends, and we kind of saved up all year to be able to go back to Scotland instead of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. They're very similar. We also were able to spend a few days in Iceland as well while we were there and just had a wonderful time. Uh, the highlight of our vacation, though, was that one of our sons proposed to his girlfriend on one of the beautiful and scenic Scottish mountains, and she said yes. Uh, the only mystery to me is that he didn't wear a kilt when he did it. It might have to do with the fact, though, that we're not really Scottish. Anyway, it is uh, good to be back. I love going to other countries because it tends to broaden my view on lots of things. I think in this country, we tend to be a little bit egocentric and, and we think the world revolves around us. And then you go to other countries and you realize that, that in other places, people do things differently. People eat differently. People dress differently many times. They just have different ways of seeing things and doing things. And, and I just think it's helpful for us to broaden our perspective on lots of things realize that we're not alone in this world. And yet at the same time, every time I go to another country, whatever it might be, while I'm there, the thought always occurs to me, I'm sure glad I live in America. I'm so glad I'm from this country. There's so much for which we can be thankful. And one of the things that we can be thankful for that relates to what I want to talk about here today is that despite the fact that I don't believe that we are really a Christian nation anymore, despite that, if anybody spends a significant time in this country, I think they will be exposed to the gospel, and I'm thrilled about that. They will be exposed to the message that God so loved the world, he sent his only son to die in our place and for our sin, and that he defeated both sin and death, when he rose from the dead and through faith in him, we can have eternal life. That's the good news. That is the gospel message. And as a culture, we still celebrate holidays like Christmas and, and Easter, and it opens the door for these conversations. I remember I, my wife and I had some Pakistani neighbors, and one Christmas we decided to take them to Ogilvy to see the Christmas lights. And as we were driving along, we came across a display with Joseph, Mary, and the baby. And the husband looked at me and he said, who are they? They'd never heard the name Jesus, never heard the story, and it opened up an opportunity for us to tell the story. Now, how this relates to what I want to talk about here today is that I'm convinced, I'm still convinced, the, despite the fact that I, I, I think I've become broader in my perspective on lots of things, I'm still convinced, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that a person has to put their trust in Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. I'm still convinced that that is the case, and it's not based on some feeling I have. It's, it's based on what's recorded in the pages of the Bible. As a couple weeks ago, I quoted from John 14, 6, where Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It sounds kind of proud, maybe, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'm it, I'm the way. Now, he said this same thing in probably a dozen other ways. He said things like, I'm the gate to the sheepfold. I am the bread of life. I am this. I, I mean, he claimed to be all these things. I'm the light of the world, not a light, but the light. 
and the very life of humanity. I think Jesus was part of our creation. He was there at creation, creating us, but he also is the author of eternal life. And of course, the Apostle Paul confirmed this perspective in Acts 4.12. He said, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. The word saved means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. You know, it's, it's just a really word just means delivered. You know, we've spiritualized the idea to be saved. But if you're drowning and someone saves you, they deliver you. And when it's used, this term in the New Testament, it usually means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin, to be forgiven, to be given the free gift of eternal life. But this says you must be saved by one name only. It's the name of Jesus. Now, where this intersects with what I want to talk about here today is that it doesn't seem fair to many that in some countries you'll hear a lot about Jesus, but other people, it's possible that they'll go to their grave and never have heard the name of Jesus. And in what sense is that fair? If a person needs to put their trust in Jesus, yet they haven't heard about Jesus, it does not seem fair. That's the issue I kind of want to address here today. Because I resonate with what some have said to me over the years. They said, you know, the only reason you're a Christian is because you were raised in a Christian country. But if you had been raised in another country, maybe you wouldn't be a Christian. You know, over in Scotland, the, the main church is the Church of Scotland but it's still basically a Christian denomination. It's Presbyterian. Ireland, or I'm sorry, Iceland is the church of Iceland. It's the main church. It's run by the government, but it's Lutheran. But a lot of countries, if you were raised in those countries, if you were raised in the Middle East, if you were raised in Asia, you might, you might be raised as a Muslim or you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or something else. And of course, all those religions claim to be the right way, but Christ comes along and says, I'm the right way, and... And what about those who haven't heard? And is it fair? Today, I want to look at the story that makes this point as my main takeaway that God can reach anyone. Despite our failures even at communicating the message, as we'll see in a little bit, God can reach anyone regardless of where they are. He is not limited by geography. And Jesus is still the way. Now, we're going to continue our series today, Messed Up. Most of this series, it's been toward the end of the summer, most of this series has been about biblical characters that blew it big time, and yet they ended well. In some cases, these were people that blew it, and then they met God, and their life was transformed. In other cases, they already knew God, and they blew it big time, and yet their life ended well. It's possible to blow it big time and end well, but today's story is going to be a little bit different. It's the story of a woman who's very life was kind of messed up. Her religion was kind of messed up. If I can put it that way, you'll see why I say that in a minute. And yet she found God. The story we're going to look at today is the story of Rahab from the Old Testament. When we first meet this woman, her profession, her business is prostitution. And she comes from a polytheistic Religion. In other words, Pauli means many, theistic means God. They, they believe in many gods. And so the Canaanites from which she came believed in many gods. And, um, and they worshiped different kinds of gods. But the Canaanite gods in particular were, 
were worse than some others for a couple of different reasons. One is that they sacrificed children on altars. They did human sacrifice. But second, they were known for, uh, as part of their religion, just a sexual perversion. A scholar by the name of W.A. Elwell puts it this way, Canaanite religion was evidently the most sexually depraved of any in the ancient world. This was Rahab's life, this was her world, this was her religion. And one could argue that someone like that could never find the true and living God surrounded by that. And yet she did. And as we'll see in a minute, really all the people in her world could have also responded to this message. It demonstrates to me that God can reach anyone. Now, our story today is found in Joshua chapter 2, but let me find some background to the story. Some of you that have a Bible, you can turn to Joshua 2 as we're going to begin looking at this story. But let me give you the background. Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt where they had lived for about 400 years. And for 40 years, Moses led these people to wander in what's called the wilderness, but it basically was a desert area. And for 40 years, they were led by Moses. But toward the end of that time, it was time for a replacement. Joshua was chosen by God to be the new leader. It was his job to bring the people of Israel into what's called the promised land. You see, God had promised to give the Israelite people a land of their own. It was a promise that he had made over 400 years earlier to Abraham. And now it was going to be fulfilled, and it was Joshua's job to lead them into the promised land. But the way they needed to do it was through a military campaign, and so I want to get on a little bit of a rabbit trail for this. In fact, this morning, we're going to go on just a few rabbit trails to address some things. If you read the Old Testament, you will read stories of how God told the Israelites to go into a particular country or a city and wipe out everybody. Are any of you bothered by that? I mean, when you read that story, it's like, it doesn't seem... In my mind, I immediately think of images of our, of our own Christian background with the Crusades where somehow, because God told us we could go in and wipe people out or, or some modern faiths today, radical Islam. It's okay to kill people, innocent people. And yet I'm convinced that God did indeed have Israel do this. You have to wonder why. And I've concluded over the years, and it may not be a satisfactory answer, but I think that God was using Israel to judge these nations. He could have done it himself, but he chose the nation of Israel to do it. You see, what you find repeated in the Old Testament quite a bit is this idea that God gives countries and nations an opportunity to turn to him. And he gives them a lot of time to do it, but when they don't do it, when a nation becomes irreconcilable, when a nation comes to a point where it's hopeless, where it comes to a point where living in that country is worse than death, God judges that nation. And oftentimes, he's the one that executes the judgment, like with the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the case of the Old Testament, God used Israel as, as his hammer of judgment upon these nations. Now, I think he did it again because the culture was irredeemable. The first example we have, and this is in Genesis chapter 6, related to the flood. 
In Genesis 6 and verse 5, we read, the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Now, I've had a lot of people over the years, more than, I mean, I've had quite a few, who've said to me, I don't wanna, I don't wanna give birth to children in this world. And they're talking about living in the United States. They say, I don't wanna introduce children to this world because things are so bad. Things are not so bad. You don't know what so bad is. So bad is what God was dealing with in Genesis chapter six, it says, Every thought of everybody's mind was only evil always. It, it was a, a world in which there was violence, there was no justice, you could not expect to get justice, it was not safe, everybody was lying, stealing, killing people. Life in that world was not worth living and I think when a culture gets to that place, it's over. In the Old Testament, we find examples where the nation of Israel was going to attack another country. And God said, don't do it. And then God explained why. He said, it's because their wickedness hasn't reached its peak yet. It hasn't reached that point yet. But these nations that lived in this promised land had had over 400 years to turn to God, and they did not do it. And so they came to a point where I believe they were irreconcilable. So God was sending Israel in, lead, led by Joshua. And the first city they were going to come to was the city of Jericho. And so let's begin reading in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. Now, I know two things up to this point, two observations. Number one, these spies were lousy at being spies. I mean, the story begins that, that Joshua secretly sent some spies, and then they arrive in the city, everybody knows they're there, <laughs> you know? They just didn't do a very good job about it, at least dressed like the Canaanites or something. I don't know, they just weren't very good about it. Immediately, the king was told, they're over here, Rahab's house. But the second thing, and it's the second rabbit trail that I wanna go on, because sometimes you read these things and you gotta stop and ask some questions. Was it okay for Rahab to lie? That's the question. And theologians are kind of split on that one. You see, saying it was okay for her to do this opens the door to what's called situation ethics. Let me give you the definition from Webster's Dictionary. Situation ethics is a system of ethics by which acts are judged within their contexts instead of by categorical principles. In other words, something is right or wrong based on the circumstance. It's not objectively right or wrong. 
And so lying, stealing, murder, all these things can be justified if the circumstance allows for it. And so you can see how situation ethics, which is the motto of our country today, or at least the mode of operation for many, you can see how this could be a little bit of a problem because people are going to justify it. And then you read the story of this woman named Rahab. She's called a, a woman of faith in the New Testament, and she's someone worth emulating. And the first time we find her talking to anybody, she lies. Is it okay to lie? I personally believe Rahab did the right thing here. Not that it was okay to lie, though. Let me explain what I mean. Sometimes we're faced with a situation where both choices are not good and where you'll violate a law regardless of what you do. And in this case, Rahab had concluded that the God of these spies was the true and living God, as we'll see in a minute. And she knew if she turned them over, that they would be painfully tortured and killed. She knew that would happen, and so she was faced with the choice of turning them over and them getting killed, which was a, a bad offense, or lying, and she took the lesser of the two. And I personally think she chose correctly. But do not use her example as an opportunity to lie, because most of the people who have told me, well, the reason I lied was to protect the other person, are lying. They just are. They, they weren't really interested in protecting the other person. They lied to protect themselves. They lied so that people would not look differently about them. They lied so they wouldn't get in trouble. They lied for various reasons, but it's not because there's some greater good at work there. In this case, the life of the spies. But let's continue reading the story. Before the men fell asleep, she went on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours if you don't report our mission. We will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Here's where we get to the heart of my point this morning. Her answer is remarkable for a lot of reasons, but she begins to explain, we heard, we've heard all about you. All of us have. We heard how, how the waters parted for you and you walked on dry, dry ground when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years earlier. They'd heard the story. In addition to that, I can guarantee you they heard about the plagues in Egypt. They heard what happened there. They heard that this people was being led by a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. I'm sure they heard that, that through Joshua that God parted the waters of the Red Sea as they crossed or were about to cross. I guess they wouldn't have known about that just yet. They heard all these stories. Everybody heard all these stories. 
They heard how the Israelites had defeated probably the two greatest kings of the day. These two names, Og and Bashan, these guys, everybody knew who they were, the greatest kings. And then a ragtag group comes across the desert and defeats these mighty kings. Rahab knew that that, that was God, that wasn't them. It wasn't that they were great soldiers, it was God. And here we begin to see something remarkable about this woman. She saw the truth and responded differently than everybody else. She said these words, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That is remarkable for her to say that. You see, in biblical times, all of the, the religions in that area, every single one of them, believed that gods were localized to various areas or arenas of influence. There was, the, there was the God of the heavens, there was the God of the earth, there was the God of the sea, there was the God of the plains, there was the God of the crops, the God of the rivers, on and on. There were all these separate gods and they were strong in their own dominions. The main God of the Canaanites was the God of weather as typified with holding a, a firebolt, a lightning bolt in charge of all the weather, the skies. And she says, there's one God, basically. She says, your God is the God of the heavens and the earth below you. And everything in between is the implication there. Everything, your God is the only true God. She got it right. She came to put her faith in that God. How did she arrive at the conclusion? She listened to the evidence. The others didn't. Their response was very different. All the people in that area had heard the stories but what did they do? They buckled down. They said, we're going to fight against Israel and its God. But Rahab saw it for what it was. How can you look at God's mighty hand and all the things that he's done and conclude anything else except your God is the God of the heavens above and the God on the earth. Yours is the only true God. And she turned her heart toward that God. Now, I would argue here today that God probably opened her eyes about this, but that the others are without excuse because the evidence was undeniable. Everybody knew it. She even says it. It's interesting as she's telling the story, she uses the pronoun we. We all heard this. We heard this. We saw this. We knew all this happened. And then she says, but I, I know your God is the one true God. I think there is one God. To this day, I think there's one God, only one God. And there's one way to that God, and it's Jesus Christ. But God is able to save somebody regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their past, regardless of what they faced in their lives. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament writes about Rahab, and this is what he says in Hebrews eleven thirty one: By faith Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. What's interesting to me is the word disobeyed. That's the correct translation of this. It's not disbelieved. They disobeyed. What does it mean to disobey? Well, they heard the evidence and they refused to submit to it. They knew about what God had done. It wasn't a question of whether they believed the story or not. They all believed the story. They were scared to death. But they disobeyed. They refused to turn to that God. That's what the real issue is. Now, I'm still convinced that anybody that seeks for God will find him if they seek for God with all their heart. But the people of her day were not willing to do that. Let's get to the rest of the story, then I want to wrap up with some applications. Continuing in verse 15, 
Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his blood will be on his own head and will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his blood will be on our heads. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath we made you, you made us swear. Let it be as you said, she replied, and she sent them away. And after they were gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Of course, many people have made a correlation here between this story, the imagery, and how we come to Christ these days. This is a picture of a scarlet cord that was hung from a window, and all the people who took refuge in that house, barked by the scarlet cord, were saved physically. They were saved. But that this points to someone else, Jesus, who shed his blood for us, his scarlet blood for us. And those who take refuge in him are saved. Only spiritually, I think it points to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Only those who take refuge in him find forgiveness of sin. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, you can read the rest of the story for yourself in Joshua 4, how this particular battle was very unique, how God destroyed the walls of the city so that the Israelites just walked in and took charge, although one part of the wall remained standing. It's where the cord was. And I love the way the story ends in Joshua 6.25. It says, however, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. And here's the phrase I like, and she lives in Israel to this day. She's among us to this day. She'll verify the story. She still lives with us. Jewish commentaries add some things to this story, traditions that they've held for hundreds of years. They add, for example, that they believe that Joshua married her. The tradition has it that six, I'm sorry, eight priests or prophets came from her line, including Jeremiah the prophet. I don't know if that part is true or not. What we do know is that she was the mother of Boaz who married Ruth, the Old Testament character Ruth. And we know that their grandchild was a young boy named David who would become Israel's greatest king, and that, if you skip to the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, you'll find Rahab's name is listed in Jesus' genealogy. Now, you stop for a moment and say, why would God include someone like that in his genealogy? It shows the heart of God to reach people wherever they are. So how should we apply this story? Let me give you some applications here today. First of all, when we're faced with the question, is God fair in terms of people that maybe haven't heard or whatever, when we're faced with that particular question, I, I am convinced of certain things. Number one, I'm convinced that God loves everybody. I, I'm just positive that's the way God is. God is love. He loves everybody. Second, I'm convinced that it's God's heart that everybody find him. 
Paul wrote about that. It's not God's will that any perish, that all come to repentance. This is God's heart. And third, I'm convinced that God is able to reach anyone. When I put all that together, I'm just, I'm just telling you that I have arrived at the conclusion when I think of what looks like the injustice of God about people who haven't heard, I've arrived at the conclusion I can trust God. I can trust he's always gonna do the right thing. I can trust God that he really does love people and I can trust God he's powerful enough to save with or without a human witness. For example, I have heard not one or two, but dozens of stories of Muslims who have been visited by Jesus in their dreams. Now, I'm not someone into dreams and visions and things. If you know me, I'm just not, I'm not into dreams and visions. I mean, God can work that way, don't get me wrong, but I'm not into that, but I am convinced that Jesus himself has been appearing to some people. They're becoming Christians. In the, they went to bed with Islam. They woke up as Christians, and it changed their lives, and I've read their stories. I've heard their stories, and I'm convinced it's true. God can reach anybody wherever they are. Second application here is to remind us that God did give us the responsibility of sharing the good news. Go into all the world and preach the good news. That This is God's primary way of getting the message of Jesus to the world is us. And it's part of what we're about as a church. Third, I want to just offer this thought. I, I, when I look at the people in Rahab's day, I think, why did they not respond to the truth? But then I realize sometimes I don't. We need to get better at listening when God is speaking to us. Rahab listened, the others did not. And finally, I think there's some of you here perhaps today that have never put your trust in Jesus and you don't know if your sins are forgiven. We're gonna sing a song right now called, written on my heart, or it has this line that written on my heart is this word forgiven. When I look at the story of Rahab and I look at where she's referred to in the Bible, it keeps calling her the Rahab, the prostitute, or the prostitute Rahab, but that's not her identity. Her identity is forgiven, and when you put your trust in Christ, that becomes your identity as well. And so I'd like us all to stand. We're going to sing this song, but then I'm going to come back out, and I just want to offer a prayer that you can pray to put your trust in Jesus Christ when the song is done.
forgiven, forgiven on my heart. This word is written, forgiven, forgiven. No guilt or shame can hold me. I'm covered by your mercy on my heart. This word is written, forgiven, forgiven. Rahab experienced forgiveness because she turned to the true God. And I want to just provide an opportunity for you as well. You know, we can't fix the fact that we're sinful. We can't fix that. And we need a deliverer just like she did, a savior. And this is why God sent his son into this world. He committed no sin so that he could take upon himself our sin. He was executed in your place, in my place, for what we've done wrong. And he did die, but he rose again from the dead. It shows the payment was accepted by God. And how do we receive this forgiveness? It's through faith. It's by making Jesus Christ the object of our faith. So I'd like us to bow our heads. And if you understand what I'm saying here today, and would like to put your trust in Christ, I just encourage you to pray this prayer to God, even in your own words if you'd like. Something like this, dear God, I know I've, I've blown it. I know I sin. And I can't fix it. I need a, a savior. I want, oh Lord, to be forgiven of my sin. And I do believe you sent your son Jesus to come into this world, taking on flesh and blood so that he could live a sinless life and die in our place and for our sin. And then he rose again as the savior of the world. But today I wanna to receive him as my savior. Today I put my trust in him. Today I claim your promise in John 3 where you said whoever believes in him Whoever makes the risen Lord Jesus Christ the object of their trust would receive the free gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. I come to you in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen.